Good morning. It is a privilege to uh, be back here at Proclamation worshiping uh, our Lord alongside of you all. My name is Nathaniel Stamper. I'm here with my wife, uh, Kelsey, and our four children, Moses, Eden, and Elijah, uh, and Iris, uh, who is our new addition, just born two months ago. It was funny, as, as my wife was pregnant, our friends were trying to get the name out of us for the fourth child. And they go, we know you're not going to break the, the theme here of biblical names, right? Moses, Eden, and Elijah. Uh, so they were a little surprised when uh, our fourth child was born and we named her Iris. Uh, but it is a privilege uh, to be here from, from Lancaster uh, City. And um, I was also encouraged to, to hear that uh, Reverend De Bruin is able to uh, have a little bit of a break and be able to rejuvenate. Uh, two years ago when I transitioned out of pastoral ministry and into uh, teaching at Veritas Academy, uh, the first church we began worshiping at uh, was actually here. And uh, we found great encouragement here and uh, rejuvenation. So we're, we're very uh, thankful for the comfort uh, in Christ that uh, we found here. And uh, along those lines of comfort, uh, let me tell you about a little short story about a friend of mine named William. Uh, William, he had a, a great job. Actually, he still has a very good job that blessed his, his family and his wife, enabling them to have a life of, of comfort and the freedom to, to travel. They had a big house. They had fine material possessions. They loved the Lord. They regularly attended uh, worship services at their church, and from the outside looking in, nothing appeared to indicate that a storm was on the horizon. That is until he had his very first sudden panic attack. Then sleepless nights began to compound, making his anxiety worse. And after about a month, William and I started talking to identify his anxiety triggers. Now, I, I don't want to sound simplistic. These are layered and complicated matters. Uh, but we did pinpoint one of his triggers, wealth. He had a career with a great income. He had a sizable bonus coming his way, like a really big bonus. And he had this moment in one of our conversations in which it just seemed like the Holy Spirit helped him uncover an idol of his heart. And he said something to me along the lines of, I began thinking of how much this bonus meant to me and my family. And the more I took comfort in the bonus, the more anxious I became of losing it. And then I began to worry about losing my job, which made me feel more anxious. And the harder I worked to guarantee my security, the less secure I felt and the more frequent the panic attacks became. I remember talking to William. He's, his anxiety had actually spread so that he could have a panic attack by, by merely looking at his wife because his heart would race to speculate how losing wealth would affect her. The idol's promise was a lie. The promise of security only led to insecurity. Now, William isn't his real name, but this is a very real story at a cursory look at what Jeremiah, our text, speaks to. 
idolatry. What is it? For Reinhold Niebuhr, idolatry, it makes the contingent absolute. Right? The finite, we, we make the finite infinite. For theologian David Wells, he defines idolatry as, quote, trusting some substitute for God to serve some uniquely divine function. The New City Catechism states that idolatry is, quote, trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope, happiness, significance, and security. I think any adequate definition should include the idea that idolatry is worshiping the created over the creator for meaning and the promise of shalom or or, or some future hope, which results in the reorientation of our hearts to then walk in light of this hope, this false hope. Ezekiel 14 describes idols as residing in the heart, and often they're hidden. According to the Bible, the heart is the the steering wheel of every human being. It's, It's where our motivations come from. It's the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4, 23. And throughout the scripture, it's likened to a root that determines the quality of the fruit, our behavior, our thoughts, our words. And you see, idols captivate our hearts, leading us to reorient our lives to conform to this idol that will produce new fruit. Idols make false promises, often subtly attaching themselves to our hopes and fears, which then lead to our ruin. So the, last, the very last sentence from St. John's first epistle is actually a command. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Chapter 5, verse 21. And he says this because he knows the danger of idolatry. It's the second commandment, which we read today in our our, uh, call to worship, I believe. And it's one of the most frequent refutations in scripture. And what Jeremiah shows us in this passage is the folly of idolatry in light of the truth and wisdom and power of God. So today, I just I want to look at three points as we look at this passage. And I'm not going to be able to look at this passage exhaustively, but we're just going to look at three points. One, the attraction of idols. Two, the worthlessness of idols. And three, the end of idols. And then afterward, I'll end with three applications. So I like that number three today. That's the... It's a Trinitarian number, right? Three points, three applications. Uh, Let me just pray and then I'll begin. Father God, we uh, thank you for your word. May you speak to us through the uh, reading and preaching of the word and may your name ever be praised. Amen. First, the attraction of idols. One, the inevitability of worship. This passage presents us with the false idols, or the one true God. But there are only two options. And this is the most fundamental truth about human beings. We are worshipers. We were created to worship. Everyone worships. In Romans 1, St. Paul says that if we do not worship the creator, we will exchange the truth of God for a lie by worshiping the created rather than the creator. Paul Tripp writes that if God isn't ruling our heart, that someone or something else will. 
He says it's the way we were made. If we were, and we are, created to be given to something outside of ourselves, we are also meaning makers. We, we seek to make meaning, to find purpose. And Timothy Keller says regarding idols that we deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment. It's inevitable that if we do not worship God as he has revealed himself in his word, that we will worship a false substitute. We must find meaning and purpose one way or another. The second attraction of idols is the social influence. First John warns us about three realms of temptation, right? The, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And the world represents the circumstances surrounding our hearts. Right? Look at Israel and Judah's social influence, their circumstance. Verses 2 and 3. Learn not the way of the nations, for the customs of the people are vanity. Idolatry was the, the zeitgeist of the day. It was supported by public opinion. You had nations like Assyria, Babylon, Egypt. They were all doing it, and to some degree, they were successful. And part of the temptation into idolatry is that peer pressure in culture on believers. If they're flourishing, why not us? David Pallison claims that, quote, sin is highly sensitive to peer pressure. We not only sin against others, he says we are also drawn into sin by the influence of others. We are meaning makers, and in our pursuit of meaning, we will influence others for good or for ill. So there's, one, the inevitability of worship. Two, the social influence. And the third attraction of idols is the allure of false beauty. Idols are attractive. Look at verse 9. The finest imported silver and gold adorn the idols that were designed by the most skilled craftsmen. They were then dyed with violet and purple. Expensive dyes associated with royalty. Idols are attractive. Thus they entice us. However, just because something is, is beautiful it doesn't mean that it corresponds with what is true and what is good. How do we recognize and pursue truth, beauty, and goodness as Christians? God's word is truth. And we identify what is good by its purpose and meaning. Do its purpose and meaning align with God's purpose and meaning revealed in his word of truth? We subject in other words, we subject the beauties of this world to a biblical understanding of what is true and what is good. Jeremiah is telling God's people, not everything that glitters is gold, and not all beauties are true and good. And he did this throughout his prophetic ministry. He, he argued this right off the bat. Jeremiah chapters 2 and 3, he's indicting God's people for being morally corrupt because of idolatry. It's one of the themes throughout the prophets. Idolatry leads to injustice. It violates what is good. Do not let the beauty that lacks truth and goodness sway us. They lead to ruin. 
And, you know, it's with this perspective we can actually sympathize with others who are navigating a world of temptation. We can say in honesty, right, I see the ways of this world are attractive, but they are a lie. And we must discipline our attractions and our affections by measuring them with truth and goodness to grow in wisdom and holiness. And this process leads not only in intellectual growth as we grow to to know truth, But it involves the reorienting of our affections. By reshaping our hearts, the Holy Spirit works in us to love the things that the Lord loves. Thus aligning our affections with him. And you see, these idols are neither true nor good. Which leads us to my second point. The worthlessness of idols. First... Idols are man-made. They may appear beautiful, but at the end of the day, they are figments of man's imagination. They are made by finite hands. The finite cannot produce the infinite. Beginning in verse 3, a tree from the forest that's cut down, it's worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. I hope you can pick up on the satirical description of these idols being manufactured. Right? These so-called gods must be shaped by carpenters back in their woodsheds after being cut down from the forest. But uh uh-oh, we don't want these gods to fall off the mantle. We should fasten these gods down with, with hammer and nails. And this is because two idols are impotent. They're powerless. Verse 5, they are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. They lack any sort of power in and of themselves. They cannot speak or walk. The only power that they have is the power we give them when we speak for and carry them then we carry their anti-gospel message. So they are man-made. They are utterly powerless except three. Idols make their idolaters like them. Idols make their idolaters like them. While they are impotent, powerless, idols make us like them. Verse 8, idolaters, Jeremiah says, are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Verse 14, every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless. A work of delusion. Idols are foolish. They're man-made. They're powerless. But there's a warning here. They're dangerous. We orient our lives around our objects of worship, whether in true or false worship. And as our lives orient around idols, our lives then move in the direction of their lies. And then our ability to see or hear otherwise is dulled. When worshiping idols, we are remade in their image, and that remaking is our ruin. 
we become unable to discern. The psalmist, in Psalm 135, we read this morning, says, The idols of the nations, they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, they do not see. They have ears, they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You see, our ability to discern truth over lies is lost as we become absorbed in our idols. In other words, we become spiritually blind and deaf. We are cut off from God's wisdom, becoming fools. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools what? They despise wisdom and instruction. What hopes and fears do we see in our culture, in our nation today, that demonstrate this principle? Right? The idols in our nation today with their false promises, they put pressure on us. Right? For, for us as Christians to refuse to worship the idols in our culture or to speak out against them may even put us at risk, professionally or otherwise. And as people in our society are becoming like their idols, so goes their blind advocacy. Just as the idols were objects of mockery, their followers' folly is manifested. And we see this today, don't we? Some of the most ludicrous claims and behavior in our society today, yet we should not be surprised. I teach logic at Veritas Academy to early teens. And um, they will look at some of the claims coming from certain voices from the zeitgeist of our culture. Ordinarily, it's entertainers or politicians. And, and they'll come to class and they'll ask me, they'll say, Mr. Stamper, you know, I, hold on, time out. I realize this person isn't a Christian, but can't they see how illogical and contradictory their claims are. And Jeremiah answers my students. He says, they are both stupid and foolish. Verse 8. Every man is without knowledge. Put to shame by his idols. Verse 14. The psalmist answers my students, those who make these idols become like them, so do all who trust them. St. Paul answers my students in Romans 1, verse 21, that they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. We are remade in the image of our object of worship. And the judgment on idolaters is that we are given precisely what we want to follow in the direction of the idol's lies, to believe in the false hopes we want from our idols, and to become as vain and deluded as the idols we behold. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5.21 Proverbs warns us, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And this leads me to my third and final point, the end of idols. 
Notice in this passage Jeremiah's simple two-step strategy. It's the same strategy you see if you read through the prophets. It's the same strategy in the Psalter. It's the same strategy that the prophet Elijah uses on Mount Carmel in uh, 1 Kings 18. And it's a useful approach for us as Christians to offer a powerful apologetic, to offer the hope of the gospel, right? Here's the two-step approach that I see here. First, an argument against our our culture's idols. An argument against our culture's idols. And second, you posit the truth of God's character and, and attributes in contrast. And there's always this contrast. In his classic article on this topic of idolatry, it's called Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair, David Pallison writes, quote, Idols counterfeit aspects of God's identity and character. Judge. Savior. Source of blessing. Sin bearer. Object of trust. Author of a will which must be obeyed. And so forth. So we critique the idols of the world, showing how their gods, their false gods, are insufficient for meaning and powerless to fulfill their hopes. And then we offer not just the truth of Jesus Christ, but how all their misguided hopes and longings invested in idols are actually fulfilled in Jesus as he provides the adequate basis for meaning, the superior vision of shalom or a future hope. And you see, Jesus, he's he's not just a series of true propositions, but he's a wise, loving, powerful person who is good and beautiful. Like Jeremiah, we find the, the qualities of the idols that mimic our Lord, and we expose them to the idolater. So, for example, while idols lack any true power, in contrast, Jeremiah argues, verse 6, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great and might. And the contrast here is evident. Idols, they derive their character and power from humans, Yahweh's character and power and authority are self-derived. This is God's aseity from the Latin assay, meaning from oneself. God has no equal. No one even measures in degree. And the very name Yahweh indicates it means he is not dependent. The idols do not match up. Jeremiah continues, while idols are a lie, in contrast, Jeremiah argues, verse 10, the Lord is the true God, he's the living God, and the everlasting king. There's another evident contrast. Images of of idols are lies from human imagination, but God is truth and living and everlasting. Idols are the, the manifestation of our lies, But Jesus is the true image of God manifested. Even truth is derived from 
God's being and character. It's not some law or quality derived from outside of God. Right? Jesus doesn't say, like every false leader in history, hey, follow me, I, I know the way to truth. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. You see, idols are lies. God is truth, and all truth derives from him. Jeremiah then demonstrates God's truth and power and wisdom in creating the world. Verse 12, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom. His understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Can our man-made, infinite idols match this? And Jeremiah's argument is simple. We all have two choices for worship. The self-sufficient God of the universe. Or wood that we've shaped and nailed down. We all have the choice between wisdom and folly. Truth and lies, power and impotence, a beautiful God who has made us his inheritance, verse 16, or adultery against this beautiful, loving Lord for this lie in our imagination. And the choice is right in front of us. Verses 11 and 15, the end of idols is a final judgment. He says, verse 11, Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Verse 15, They are worthless, work of delusion. And at the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The end of our false idols is coming. There is judgment coming in all idolatry. And and if, if you're kind of perceptive, you may be thinking, well, hold on. To some degree, we are all actually guilty of idolatry. Won't judgment fall on us? Jesus came to this world in every way like us, but without sin. And he spoke truth over the lies of our idols. And much like how the idolaters, they they, they nailed down their idols to their mantles, they tried to treat Jesus that way. They nailed him down to a cross. However, that Jesus was not a man-made, impotent manifestation of a lie, and thus the cross and then the grave, they could not hold him. And he made a way for sinful idolaters to, to break the allure of lies and to live to righteousness. And therefore, he can bring judgment on our idols without making us perish because he perished himself on our behalf for sin. Thus remaking us now in the image of Christ through true worship. And it's in light of this that I just, I'm going to end here with with three applications I want to leave you with, you can think about. First, faith comes by hearing, not by sight, and hearing the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Deuteronomy 4 and, and It says that the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. 
There was only a voice. And then the rest of the passage goes on to prohibit idolatry. And you see, the writers of scripture see this connection and the principle is clear. God reveals himself in his word. And we live by trusting the word of God. When my oldest son was a toddler, he thought ghosts were real because he watched Ghostbusters on television. And we were driving in our car and he was confessing this fear to us. Uh, It was a very real fear to him of an attack of a hundred foot marshmallow man. And my wife and I, we were trying to reassure him that, that not everything you see on TV is real, right? We're trying to explain the concept of, of fictional stories. And I kid you not, this is a true story. We were on 30, and we were getting off right there at the Harrisburg exit at the red light. And as we're explaining this to him, and he's starting to trust us, a replica Ghostbuster ambulance pulls up right next to us at the red light. You can imagine how this affected my son. He he doesn't believe what we're saying because what he sees with his own eyes. This is the challenge for us too. Will we believe the word of our heavenly father or will we trust what our eyes see? The images of our own making. The peer pressure from the current zeitgeist of our culture, whatever it constantly changing, whatever it is. Seeing is not believing. We walk by faith, not by sight. Second, ask yourself key questions to see if you have a hidden idol of the heart. I got these from Ed Welch in the journal Biblical Counseling. He says, ask yourself, what do you love? What do you hope for or crave? What gives you ecstatic joy or leaves you in despair? What do you fear? What do you worry about? What do you hate? What do you feel you need? Where do you find refuge, comfort, pleasure, or security? Where do you believe that God has let you down? You see, we locate hidden idols of the heart by looking at our unshakable, strong emotions. Like I said earlier, idols, they captivate our hearts, and then we conform our lives around them. Therefore, they control us and thus steer our emotions. Follow your intense emotions to see where they lead. You just may uncover a hidden idol of the heart. Third and last, application. When you've uncovered an idol, you do what the prophets call us to do. We must tear them down. How do we do that? There was a Puritan preacher named Thomas Chalmers, and he taught that our desires for God and our idols cannot, they can't coexist in the same heart. They are what he referred to as opposing affections. One always pushes the other out. Therefore, Chalmers wrote, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is the expulsive power of a new one. I heard one pastor say it this way, we worshiped ourselves into this mess, we worship ourselves out. 
The only way to tear down an idol, listen carefully to this, is to replace it. We were created to worship. We will worship something or someone. It's inevitable. Idols must be replaced. Everyone worships. We were created to cling to something for our ultimate joy. The source of our, of our comfort and fulfillment to love above all else. So to tear down an idol, we repent of our sin in raising up the idol. And we continue to grow in finding our ultimate source of comfort, security, meaning, and hope in Jesus Christ. The one who paid the penalty for our idolatry, who welcomes us into the family of God. We receive and rest upon Jesus alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. The gospel of Christ crucified, the, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1. Jesus is the one who is true. He is good. He is beautiful. Lean on Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting his word, growing in your affection to push the idols out.